Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House Chronicle, which is coming right up, but first a few thoughts of my own. I believe that the electric utility industry in the United States is going through very shuddering times. New technologies, invasive technologies, new corporations, new concepts about how we receive our electricity, who pays for it, and who pays for the infrastructure that is in place, in layman's terms the poles and the wires. So I'm happy to say that Public Utilities Fortnightly has organized a very venerable publication in the election, has organized a conference in November in Scottsdale, Arizona to look at this. They've got some of the best people in the electric utility industry looking at the future. And we have heard enormously disparate views about what the crisis is from somebody who says it's even a civil rights issue that because of solar power on rooftops there will be uh, huge price increases for people who can't afford to put in a rooftop system to others who think there's a brave new world and it can all be accommodated and all you have to do is to have careful rate design. Anyway, this conference, I'm happy to say, is sponsoring this program today. Public Utilities Fortnightly. Go to their website, you'll find it easily, and uh, I hope that you, um, if you have an interest in matters electric, you will think about going to the conference. My guest today is very special, and I'm very excited to have him here. His name is Chris Todd. He's a partner in the Washington law firm of Kellogg, Huber, Hanson, Todd, Evans, and Feigl, LLC. Correct. If we're going to go that far. But you have had a remarkable career in law, and you are the author of this rather large book. How many pages is it, Chris? Actually, I don't know. I haven't looked recently. Well, it's, uh, it's around 400 substantial pages, 407, so a bit more than that. You might want to know how many. Uh, and it is a history, 225 years, of the United States attorneys for the Southern District of New York which is, in fact, the big enchilada of prosecuting, isn't it? All the big crooks have gone through there, and you yourself, as a prosecutor, have prosecuted people out of the Watergate scandal, I think, Golly North. Uh, you have been at the forefront of major prosecutions. How did you get there? How did you get into that line of work? And what's it like doing that? Well, what it's like doing it is uh, it's like being a uh, an adult in a uh, a Disney world uh, where you're chasing the bad guys and you feel like you're always on the side of the angels and uh, it was just it was enormous fun and uh, very gratifying how long did you do it I did it uh, almost 14 years I started uh, here in Washington chasing tax evaders in the uh, criminal section of the tax division when I came back of from the, graduate of school. The, of the uh, of Department of Justice. Yes. And then I went to, to New York with the United States Attorney's Office, and that triggered my interest in the history of the U U.S. Attorney's Office. But I, uh, Bob Fisk was the uh, U.S. Attorney. He hired me, and then I served with John Martin and Rudy Giuliani. Tell me about prosecutors. Uh, at the moment, we have a lot of disturbances. We've had great difficulties following Ferguson. Uh, the police accused of exceeding their authority. Um, 
some very murky situations. And then the role of the prosecutors. In some cases, the police are reeling because they feel they're being prosecuted for murder in some cases when um, that was not their intent. And in other cases, demonstrators believe the prosecutors are not prosecuting the police. What is the role of the prosecutor and where does the responsibility to prosecute or not to prosecute rest? It rests with the, uh, in the case of federal crimes, with the United States Attorney, in the case of local crimes, with either the district attorney or county attorney. And their role is uh, a critically important one because they have to be the adults on, uh, on the scene and they have to make uh, the tough call of exercising prosecutorial discretion. And what that means is they have to decide whether they're, they're going to prosecute someone, and if so, for what, and then at sentencing to argue for uh, whatever amount of punishment there's going to be. So it's a very important uh, element of our society. But there are people who come up before the courts, not distinguished high-level trials, but ordinary, right. nameless, essentially people, feel that the prosecutors in some way are the judge and jury. Uh, or the police initiate that procedure and that it's a, uh, an unstoppable force. Uh, that The police talk to the prosecutors, the prosecutors prosecute, uh, often try to call, uh, want the defendant to plead guilty because it saves time. Uh, and there's a lot of pressure on defendants to plead guilty uh, when you get the sort of classic situation where you could go to jail for 20 years or you could plead guilty and go for two years. Isn't that a large moral responsibility on the prosecutor? It is. And um, unfortunately, with the advent of the sentencing guidelines uh, in under federal law, uh, what you just said is too prevalent. Uh, the, the, the possibility of a long jail term has caused a lot of people to, as Jed Rakoff, uh, Judge Rakoff has written, uh, to do things that they otherwise would not do because they can enter into a, a plea arrangement and therefore avoid uh, a very long pr prison sentence. But that negates justice, doesn't it? Well, I think it does, and that's why I'm not a fan of the sentencing guidelines. I much prefer the old days when I started as a federal prosecutor where judges had discretion whether to put somebody in jail or not put somebody in jail. Now they don't have that discretion. I have spent a lot of time in courts when I was a young reporter, watching courts in, in England and in the US, primarily in England, but also in the US. And the court reporters are a jury in their own right and often come to a different conclusion, mm -hmm. um, maybe because we're tend to be a little bit more on the defendant's side, maybe because we, we're, we're rebels and we don't like the system. Uh, but often I've seen reporters walking outside a court when the sentencing is to, or the, 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 the judgment has come down, not the sentence. Sentence is often known. Um, uh, just saying this, this hasn't been proved. This mm -hmm. is, uh, and there's something else happening which disturbs me as a journalist, and that is that, that uh, there aren't enough reporters anymore in the courts. I was over at a court in Virginia, and I was looking around, I said, where are the reporters? And the lady was showing me, said, oh, we used to have them. You know, they had a table of their own, but they don't come anymore, which reflected the economics in 
journalism, economics and publishing. Uh, what in the legal system, we'll get back to the book, but what in the legal system worries you? What to do with justice worries you? The th You've already stated mandatory sentencing right. is uh, something um, you don't like. It's, um, it worries me that when uh, those who are in positions of power appoint prosecutors or uh, put forward a name for a federal prosecutor or a state prosecutor, uh, that we are careful to get people of good judgment. I mean, I was once asked about independent councils and what is the best way to select an independent council, and the answer is you find somebody that's obviously smart, but somebody that has good judgment. Now, what does that mean? That means that they're uh, people of character that are not going to be swayed by publicity. I mean. Unfortunately, too often in independent counsel circumstances, it's high profile, and I feel like the independent counsels uh, are, are much swayed by what the press is doing as opposed to what the facts are doing. And if you have somebody, for example, like Bob Fisk, who has experience, who has character, and who has uh, Just for our metal. viewers and listeners, explain who Bob Fisk is. Bob Fisk is a New York attorney. Uh, he was uh, the United States Attorney when I went to work there in uh, 1978. And then later he became the Whitewater Independent Counsel. He was investigating the okay. Whitewater right, matter. Right, right. And uh, he was replaced by uh, Ken Starr. I met Ken Starr. Yeah. But Bob has recently written uh, a book about his life, and I recommend it for this for the reason that I just stated. If you find people with good judgment, uh, men or women, and you're looking at the book, there's only one woman in the history of the 225-year history of the United States Attorney's Office, that's Mary Jo White, uh, that has served as U.S. Attorney. But either way, you get people of good character, judgment, who are smart, and hopefully have some experience that can make the tough calls, particularly the tough call of we're not going to prosecute this case. There's a story in there about Paul Curran, who decided not to prosecute or bring any indictment against Jimmy Carter. He was the independent counsel investigating the peanut uh, warehouse matter. And he looked at the facts, concluded that there was no, no case, and he went public and made a very strong statement to that effect, which is the right thing to do. This book, how long did it take you? It's an extraordinary piece of scholarship. And you've gathered you. these incredible photographs of all of these prosecutors. Uh, the first part of it was, uh, it took me about a uh, year and a half, two years. That was back in 1986. And the, the United States Attorney's Office turned 200 years old, September 26, uh, 1986. And I, we had a party. And we we have a picture of everybody at that party, which we will put up on the screen, and we got it as the picture that appeared. That is a lot of people in black tie. Right. That was actually this last year, September uh, of 2014. If I might say so, it's predominantly white men. Although if you look carefully, and you can, uh, this photo shows that, it's changing. In fact, Bob Fisk made an effort when I was there, 
uh, to hire more women, and that's continued. Uh, there are probably as many, if not more, women in the United States Attorney's Office right now than, uh, than there are men. Is it a good career? Is it something that a young lawyer should aspire to? I think it's the best thing you can do as a lawyer. I mean, you, you learn things, you learn how to try cases, you, you learn how to make mistakes, admit them, correct them, uh, uh, and you have a great deal of fun. Have you uh, defended any? Sure. Uh, you've defended criminals I as have. well as prosecutors. Alleged criminals, yes. My, um, my uh, wife thinks everybody that I represent uh, is innocent. I don't do so much criminal uh, defense work now at all, but uh, I have in the past, yes. In, in Washington, we have a special kind of lawyer who never goes to court, yeah. who is lobbyist right. or, or um, does regulatory law, um, and actually misses all of what you did if you will, misses the romance of the law, which is to do with prosecution and defense. No? Absolutely. I mean, when I was, uh, as you know, I went uh, to graduate school in England, and there was a lecture at the end of it by a high court judge who had been a barrister, and he was asked at the end, well, do you regret not having studied business or art or architecture? He said, no. He said, if I had missed the bar, meaning becoming a barrister and trying cases, I would have missed the essence of life. Now, I understood that in part, and I understand it better now, because it's such great fun and education and to theater. try cases. And theater. And, and, and it can be theater. Uh, we're going to take, Chris, just a little moment for station identification, and okay. we'll come back to the theater of the law. All right. Uh, you are listening to White House Chronicle. This is particularly for our listeners on Sirius XM Radio, POTUS Channel 124, where I'm glad to say the audio from this program is broadcast four times on weekends. My guest today is Chris Todd, a partner in a Washington law firm, Kellogg, Cooper, Hanson, Todd, Evans, and Fagel. I hope they don't get any more partners because we won't be able to get it on the screen. Uh, and he has had an extraordinary career as a prosecutor in the Southern District of New York, which is the big enchilada of prosecution, all the big name cases, uh, the big criminals, and sometimes the mistaken prosecutions, as always is the case, and we'll ask him about that. This program can be seen around the world on the English language channels of the Voice of America, and 200 American television stations. The audio can also be heard frequently on Voice of America. Chris, uh, the theater of a trial. We saw O.J. Simpson was probably the one where the public saw the theater. Right. Um, is it always theatrical? Do you, do you worry the night before? Are there sleepless nights before you address a jury? Well, you always worry the night before. You always worry the day of. Uh, is there as much theater as there was in O.J. Simpson's case? Of course not. And indeed, there shouldn't be theater. There should be a methodical presentation of the facts. And the role of the lawyers, uh, I mean, I've tried two cases uh, where Edward Bennett Williams was the defense counsel, mm -hmm. and he was the, he was the best uh, trial lawyer at the time in the United States. And, but theater should not be uh, the thing that a jury uh, t 
decides their cases on. It should be the facts. But it's implicit in the procedure. It's a theatrical setup. It's a wonderful setup, and if you want, if you like theater, uh, it's a it's a great place to watch some theater. But it's that's not its uh, point, and that's not its focus. Its focus is to get a fair trial uh, for the defendant uh, and for the plaintiff or the prosecutor and to, uh, to do some justice. I know that sounds like 101, but uh, that's what it's there for, and not for lawyers to strut and to uh, exercise their... You've worked with the best legal minds, probably have one yourself in this country, studied at Cambridge in England with other great legal minds. What about the average person and the average lawyer? And I take you back to my being a reporter once and seeing defendants who didn't know what was going on, who were frightened, and often were not represented by the best minds, uh, actually often represented by very lazy minds, right. lazy people, uh, keen to get it over, especially when it's a public defender and there's very little money involved. Um, uh, what do we do about that? Is there something that can be done about it? Well, I, I would take issue with regard to the public defender, for example. I mean, there are wonderful public defenders, certainly in New York. Uh, well, I, I try one of my, one of a close friend of mine is in the appellate procedure, and he is a brilliant lawyer. Yeah. But, but I'm talking about the trial level. In New York City, some of the cases, the most talented uh, lawyers that uh, I prosecuted cases against were in the public defender's office and uh, very high standards. But even those defendants that, that uh, get the short straw and don't have as talented lawyers, you have judges there. And most judges, I mean, I have lots of friends who are on the federal branch and the state bench, and you have judges there that take, are trying to take care of them and do as much as they can. And the aim is not a perfect trial, but to get a fair trial. And I, I I believe that happens most of the time. What about elected prosecutors and elected judges? I wrote an article about this a long time ago because Texas judges are still elected, uh, I believe, unless I uh, lost complete track. But I wrote an article saying electing judges is uh, wrongheaded. Because well, it's antithetical to what you're trying to achieve, yeah. isn't it? And I gave the example of, for example, a judge that may be in a, a highly labor-intensive area, and he has a case involving a labor union. And now he has, he's 48 years old, he has children in school, and he knows if he, he decides this case against uh, the labor union, he's not going to get reelected. That's not what judges, that's not a position judges ought to be put in. They should be free, as federal judges, in my judgment, are to decide regardless, and uh, they don't get kicked out just because they make a, an unpopular decision. Many members of Congress are lawyers, and of those, quite a surprising number of former prosecutors, um, and they make a point of that. Uh, is this a good thing, that, that prosecuting is a step to political enthronement? I don't know whether it's a, a good thing as a step do I think it's a good thing as education, background, and learning how to make tough calls in very difficult situations? Yes, I do. Among 
these extraordinary people that you've, that you've written about, some names jump out at me here, Morgenthau, Fisk, uh, uh, who you mentioned, Giuliani. Who do you think were the towering greats? Well, the, the first one was the second U.S. attorney. His name was Edward Livingston. And he was called uh, by a Cambridge professor when he passed away, the first modern legal genius. And uh, he, Edward Livingston was U.S. attorney and mayor of New York City at the same time. There was an epidemic of yellow fever. He was out of office about three months. When he came back, he found that a crooked clerk had stolen about uh, hundred thousand dollars in 1803 money That's and a lot of money he he started I think the tradition of look I made a mistake I take responsibility he confessed judgment he put up property to to satisfy the debt and his wife had recently died and he moved himself to New Orleans and there he became a member of Congress and then a United States senator and defended Andrew Jackson in 1812 and later became Secretary of State and Minister of France. I tell you, this book has some absolutely wonderful photographs and illustrations in it. I think we can see some of them on the screen. Um, and, and a great deal of information about people. It must have been a labor to find it. It may have been a labor of love, but it was a labor. I was very fortunate that uh, Jim Thunder, who's an attorney in our office, was particularly interested in doing research. And he, uh, he compiled lots and lots of information, which I had then to take a, uh, a hatchet to. But still, uh, there are wonderful nuggets that remain in this book, or at least I think so. Do, you, do we have, we, we have, in the trial of Oscar Wilde in England, there was a single event. Uh, it's believed that led to his prosecution at a time when homosexuality was illegal. Right. And it was when he said, when he was asked, did you kiss the boy? And he said, no, he was too ugly. Right. Uh, do, can you think of any prosecutorial moments like that in your career or in these careers? Uh, there that are lots. You know, that is theater, by yes, the way. Yes, that is theater. I can think of, uh, I can think of many, but um, one that comes to mind, you know, there's a, a lawyer, a defense lawyer in New York who's defending a mobster in a big mob case, and the government had called a hitman who had, was trying to get a better, better treatment in prison, and he had killed 12 people. And uh, the defense counsel, Norman Ostrow, his cross-examination was as follows. Mr. Hitman, do you know who I am? And the witness, this killer, said, nah, I have no idea who you are. And Norman said, good, and sat down. And that's about as good a cross-examination as you can have of a uh, hitman killer in a mob case. Chris, one of the great entertainments on the television is, is television trials. You know, we go back to right. Perry Mason and earlier. There's always the dramatic moment, the uh, the theater moment. But also, I think it gives uh, people rather a strange impression of what happens in courts. Um, and when they get there, particularly as a defendant, a poor defendant, it, it it's really rather different. Uh, uh, is the television a problem in, in 
our perception of the legal system? I don't think it's a problem if you have an educated viewer and if you have an educated populace. They know the difference between reality, or they should know the difference but between reality and theater. The problem many people who end up in court are not educated and have a poorly developed sense of how things work. But uh, if you have a good judge, and most judges, in my, in my view, are good, uh, they quickly uh, dispel that, and they will educate uh, even the least educated about what's going on, why it's going on, and what role they play, and how important a role that uh, either a witness or a juror plays in the process. Were you tempted to be a judge? Not really. I mean, I worked for a federal judge. He was wonderful. I learned wonderful things from him. Uh, he was a great trial lawyer. and. Uh, but I've always enjoyed being in the courtroom in, on the other side of the table rather than sitting up on uh, the bench. Do you express opinions about Supreme Courts? Do you ha hold strong views? I hold strong views and I do express opinions. Uh, it, you know, it obviously depends upon what the, uh, the issue is and, uh, and who's doing what. I have the good fortune of being in a law firm where many of my partners appear before the Supreme Court uh, often. David Frederick has been there over 40 times and argued 40 cases. I find it very interesting that both liberals and, and conservatives alike can accuse this Supreme Court of <laughs> judicious activism yes. or judicial activism, right. um, which, which is very interesting because uh, they seem to upset every, both sides of the political spectrum. Uh, I find that refreshing. Do you Th think this is a good court? Uh, I <laughs> depends on what day. Uh, recently, <laughs> they had some very good days, uh, <laughs> and uh, they have some not so good days, in my judgment. But since they upset everybody, that's a positive thing. Do you think that we rely too much in our governance on the Supreme Court? No. Um, you know, I, we are. We are very fortunate as a society and a people to, to have the system work the way it does. I mean, I just, I spent a lot of time in Greece and I was just there for the yes and no vote and follow, I have good friends in Greece and, I, and I've been in other countries and lived in other countries. Why Greece? Why Greece? Because hmm. I'm on the board of uh, College Year in Athens. It's a study abroad program that was started about 55 years ago to take kids from the United States. And, and in the last minute, tell us a little about yourself. I've met your daughter. Uh, you have how many children? I have three children, uh, two daughters. Uh, one is now working at Christie's, the auction house, after studying. Uh, you didn't prosecute art. them, did you? No. They had their problem. They had their problem. Bob Fisk, in fact, defended them. And Katia, whom you met, is at Johns Hopkins in graduate school, and Benjamin, our son, is in New York City. He just graduated last spring, and his mother at least thinks he's treading water uh, until he goes to graduate school, but we'll see. Do you think they're going to go into the family trade? One may. Katia is considering it, but uh, her mother is also a former federal prosecutor and a wonderful trial lawyer. What makes a wonderful trial lawyer in about 40 seconds? Uh, somebody that understands the ethos of wherever they are. Uh, they, uh, Amelia, my wife, uh, 
was a prosecutor in the Southern District of Florida and chased the cocaine cowboys. And she understood the courtroom and she understood the witnesses and the jurors and she Chris, did very well. Thank you. And I hope that if you happen to appear before in a court that you're defended by somebody as skillful as Chris was as a prosecutor. We'll be back next week, same time, same place. Until then, stay out of the clutches of the law. Cheers.